Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, December 20th, 2012. This is episode 1045 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we are going to have uh, Mr. David Nash on. David is a uh, former corrections uh, officer and uh, did a lot of other cool things we'll talk about when he gets on. He's here to talk about DIY prepping. We do that for a while. And then we actually get into the psychology of criminals and the psychology of violence. Because with his background, I just thought that was a good subject for us to take up. Because right now, I think a lot of people are struggling with really getting their head around how dangerous society can be in certain ways. And uh, I've just heard a lot of comments from people in the audience lately uh, with things like robberies and just give them the money and they'll go away and a, a total lack of understanding at some of the members of the criminal element. So this is kind of another two for show. We've been doing a lot of those lately. We recover more than one topic in one hour. And I got a little story for you about this morning when, uh, when I get the housekeeping out of the way before I introduce David. Before we do that though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, the Free State Project. Hey, you know, the Free State Project is one way that you can do what's called voting with your feet. The hallmark of a republic is freedom of movement within the member states, and that way the states themselves have to compete for the best, the brightest, and the most talented. And uh, we've lost a lot of that with the overreach of the federal government, but the dream is still there. The dream is still alive, so to speak. And this still is a republic, at least for now. And a group of people got together and said, what if we all went to one state? We picked a relatively small state with a very representative government and tried to turn that into the freest state in the nation. That's what the Free State Project is all about. You can learn more at freestateproject.org. And hey, if you can't go there, you can always support the work that they're doing because a fight for liberty one place is a fight for liberty every place. I will probably never move to New Hampshire, but I will be speaking at the Liberty Forum uh, at the uh, Free State Project's Liberty Forum in uh, February of 2013. Love to have you come up there. Remember, we're running a contest right now where you can win VIP tickets for that event. All you have to do is donate $10 to the charity of your choice and then send stuff in. I'll put a link to the notes about that contest. I'd love to have you guys come there. Three people will win. Uh, two of the winners will get to have dinner with myself and Dorothy at uh, one of one or two different uh, major dinners with uh, keynote addresses and things like that going on. So uh, hope to see some of you guys there. And remember to learn more about the Free State Project. Check out freestate.org. Next up today, Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow, the illustrious, the famous, the infamous Chef Keith Snow. This crazy guy who's a chef that's worked at high-end restaurants and is also a prepper and lives on a farm. How's that? Uh, he'll help you learn to make cooking a life skill and help you learn to make cooking something you can do locally and seasonally. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Check out his really cool podcast and check out his awesome seasoning mixes. You'll find all of it at HarvestEating.com. Next up, remember to check out TSP Gear and TSP Copper for some really cool copper medallions and some really cool gear that we have in the gear shop. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll help support the show at about $0.18 cents an episode. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, 
And first responders like paramedics, active duty, or prior service. Email me before you join. Put service discount on the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And I'll get back to you with a discount code. Where it will save you even more money on the Member Support Brigade. To learn more about Members Brigade, folks, for those that are new, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or click on the Member Support Brigade banner in the center margin. All right, before I bring David on, I've got some cool stuff for you. Number one, I have talked over and over and over again whenever I come up with subjects on permaculture and bug out locations and stuff like that about a survival house and garden that Jeff Lawton built for a guy that they called Y2K Dave. This was back in 1999, and Y2K Dave was kind of a tenor. Uh, even among, like we would go in this community, he's kind of a tenor, but he was a cool guy. And uh, he was worried that Y2K was going to be the end of the world as we know it. He wanted this remote location, and he wanted this really cool bug-out uh, garden and bug-out house on it where nobody would be able to find him and everything would be protected. And what Jeff did was use a pond in the shape of a horseshoe, use the earth excavated from the pond to ram and build an earth ram structure. And I've explained it on the air about a billion times, and I know people that go, huh? So yesterday I put out a video, part 16 in my permaculture series on YouTube, where I basically recreated uh, the, the presentation Lawton did because getting it off the DVD was hard and I was unable to get an answer from Jeff quickly as to whether or not he would be okay with the copyright issues. So I just redid the whole thing personally. So you want to check that video out. And when you do, um, if you haven't seen it yet, Jeff has a video out called How to Survive the Coming Crisis with Permaculture. There's a link in the video notes for this. Check that video out. If you haven't done so yet, it's a 30-minute completely free video that will change the way you look at sustainability and survivability when it comes to be, being self-sufficient with your food and your water and your energy. Again, uh, it's in the video notes. You'll see How to Survive the Coming Crisis. Click on that, and uh, you can go over there and check out that awesome 30-minute video by Jeff Lawton. Okay, that was the one thing I want to say. The other thing is, um, we had a little episode this morning, no big deal at all, but once again, preparedness paying off. So last night, we had the emergency weather radio on, and eventually it went off so many times, it just kept telling me when it was a thunderstorm morning, I shut it off. Um, we had some pretty nasty thunderstorms come through, and uh, when they did get here, they, they thunder and lightning and rain, and everything was fine, you know? And... Uh, I have the house rigged up with emergency lighting, so if the power goes off, these emergency lighting, little track lights on the floor and stuff, so you can find your way out of the house, automatically come on. And I use a product called Mr. Beams for that. It's pretty simple to install, really cool. And uh, the storm goes away, and I woke up about 3 o'clock in the morning, and you could tell everything was gone. It was just windy. And uh, about, you know, 5.40, 6 o'clock in the morning, something like that, I wake up, and I'm like, why is there a nightlight on? And I'm thinking, you know, when you're half asleep, why did, I'm thinking my wife did it, you know. Why did she plug in? And I'm like, oh, it's the emergency lights. So I get up, and I check everything, and I look outside. It ain't like anything's, you know, on top of the house or nothing. So I go back to bed. I get up this morning when it's time to actually get up, put the dogs out and all, break out the generator set, fire everything up, get the TV on, get the computer on, fire up the coffee pot, you know, all, all that jazz, just so we can basically go on with life. And we start watching the news, and what happened last night was kind of interesting. Once the storms passed, the front behind it brought 
Um, winds that were sustained at 50 to 60 miles an hour for over two hours. But there was, it was just a wind front. So when the actual storm was gone was when all the damage happened. There are several tens of thousands of people throughout the state right now with no power. So I put up a picture. This is, this is interesting the way some people are. I put up a picture today on uh, Facebook. This is the generator sitting there with a couple extension cords coming out, running to the house. And I said, you know, we preppers are crazy. But, you know, this morning my wife washed her hair with warm water. Um, I had coffee. Satellite dishes on. We've got our computers up. We're running our business. Everything's just rocking on like normal. And some people are like, having a generator doesn't make you a survivalist. I'm like, why are you on my Facebook page? What, I mean, do you know anything about the, the community that you're talking to at all? And, and, and people saying, you know, hot water and coffee won't help you when the shit hits the fan. Some idiot named Ian said that. And, you know, here's why I even bring this up. It's not just so I can vent to you guys because you're my buddies, right? Um, it's because there is a, 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 a group within this group of the preparedness community that have their heads so far up their ass with being prepared for everything, they're prepared for almost nothing. Uh, they might have a bunch of food stuck away somewhere and a bunch of guns, and that's about it. They have no idea what they're doing. And, and they, 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 they crap on things like having a generator or a battery backup system or something like that because, in their view, well, when the shit hits the fan and the Mayans rise from the grave tomorrow and kill us all or the zombies rise, or whatever it is, and the whole thing goes to pot, you can't get gas for 10 years or whatever, that none of that stuff will matter. Let me tell you something, though, and this is why I did what I did yesterday with the show, with getting started and saying even the people that are well on their walk, you need to once in a while rewind and go back to the beginning and start the process, making a list, plugging the holes over again. If you think you're prepared for the end of the world as we know it, but you're not prepared to live in comfort for two weeks with the power out, you are fooling yourself. I guarantee you you're fooling yourself. It is impossible that you're prepared for the end of all be all for 10 years of road warriordom and to be Mel, Mel Gibson with a shotgun running around with a dog and, and, and fighting the Armageddon 4.0 or whatever the hell you think you're going to be doing. But yet you're not prepared enough that you can deal with something like a few weeks without power. And then the other side of this is, you know, when the shit hits the fan. Well, how many people did the shit hit the fan for with Hurricane Sandy just a few weeks ago. And how many people up there still have the shit continuously hitting their fan right now? And it's important, especially if you're finding this show and you're coming from that I'm a real survivalist view, that you understand what I'm telling you and I'm trying to pull you back down into this grounded reality. I'm not saying the long term's not good. Okay? If we have to, a year off grid, we can do it. We're prepared. We're better prepared than most people that think that they're prepared. We've, we've, we've gone over it over and over and over and over and over. The exercise I gave you yesterday, go through, plug the holes, phase two, do it again, phase three, do it again. We're in about our 20th rendition of that. Right, we're, we, are, we are well prepared for the worst of the worst. But the things that work the best for us are the things that the people that think they're prepared for that crap on every day. A couple inverters for our trucks so we can run power off our vehicles. A generator. What if you run out of gas? Well, you know what? I've got several hundred gallons worth of fuel, so you let me worry about that. Okay? You let, you let me worry about that, you know? Um, it, it, it's just, it's, it's one thing when you have to deal with people on the outside of the community 
that don't get it at all. And you just think, come on, guys, you know, it's basic stuff. Be prepared to deal without systems of support because they'll fail. They just did, right? But it's another thing when you have to deal with people that are supposedly in the know and their, their head is so far up their fourth point of contact over their one thing that's going to happen, right? And I think the worst of the worst, some of you are going to be mad with me, is the EMP thing. Those of you that are obsessed about EMP, um, what Stephen Harris said was, it's like Yoda told Luke with the dark side. Once down the path of EMP you walk, forever will it consume you. I mean, <laughs> there are so many things you better get prepared for first. There are so many things you better get prepared for first. So I'd like to kind of reiterate what I said yesterday. I want everyone to do an exercise over the holidays, even if you don't do the mechanical parts of it I gave you yesterday, just mentally. Can't go anywhere for two weeks. What would you do? You don't have any electricity for two weeks. What would you do? You, 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 you can't buy anything for two weeks. What would you do? There's no TV for two weeks. What would you do? If you start asking these questions, you start plugging the holes, you'll get ready for the disasters that you're going to experience. If you do it long enough, then you get prepared for the disasters that you might experience. To me, it makes sense that we prepare first to, for the things that are going to happen. And people that crap on that, you're not prepared for the things that might happen either. If you're not prepared for what will happen, you absolutely are not prepared for what might happen. Come on, man. And I think the other thing that gets lost, when we're dealing with situations like this morning's, um, where, okay, you got to go pull the generator out. you, you got to start running out all your cords. you got to get it started up, go through the startup procedure and all. Uh, it's not the, you know, in, in fact, while we while I was talking, I just got a text from my wife, and uh, Entergy has the power back on. So she's shutting everything down, putting everything away right now, which is also good. I think that what a lot of preppers miss that are so consumed with the concept of doomsday preppers and the world is going to end and, and everybody's going to be out without rule of law and everybody's going to be shooting everybody and feeding off the bodies of the dead or whatever nonsense is in their head. They don't realize that even with the long-term, truly big scenarios, the national global scenarios, being prepared for all these little disasters and going out and using your gear and testing your gear. You know, it used to be that when the power went out like it did this morning, I'm like, you know what, I'll fire the side burner up on the thing, throw the percolator on there, there's a the coffee, we're just doing without, and unless we figure out that, because I don't even want to go get the damn thing out, I don't want to run all the cores, I don't want to deal with all this crap if we're only going to be without power for about four or five hours. Today I look at it totally differently. Every single time I go get all the gear, hook everything up and work on it, I'm checking, does the gear work? How much fuel do I have in reserve? Do I have any cans that need to be filled up? Is the damn thing going to start up for me? I'd rather it not start up for me on a day like today when I can run out and get a part than not start up for me when I really need it. Right? So we also have to look at these little mini inconveniences to minor disasters anywhere in between the spectrum is opportunities to test our skills, our gear, our equipment, etc. So did I need to fire the generator up this morning? No. Was it a good idea? Yes. Did my wife get to see it all done again so if she ever has to do it without me, she at least knows where to start? 
Yes. Is she right now still waiting for me to come home, putting everything away exactly the way we keep it all organized? Yes. Will I check it when I go home and see if it's put away right? Yes. If it's not, will I tell her yes? Will she be mad at me? Yes. Tough crap. Right? Because if everything's done the same way every time, we can do it in the dark. We can do it in the cold. We can do it in the heat. So the people that crap on stuff like this, I think they're some of them are emotionally damaged, honestly. And, and they're so worried about whatever emotional damage has led them to believe is going to happen that they can't see anything else. But a lot of them, I think, are just full of crap. They're, they're, so, they're so sure that just being well-armed and having a few MREs is going gonna, is gonna to be what they need and they're going to go live on tree bark or whatever that they don't understand that even if they are like Mr. Gunhoke Special Forces, break one ankle and all that's over with. So I really would like to encourage you guys, whether new or old to the show, to constantly be testing your preps. And maybe don't even wait for a blackout. You know what? Go run your house on your generator for a day while the power works. Just to learn from the experience. Check your fuel reserves. Run the damn thing once in a while. It's not good for it to sit there and never run. Change the oil in the thing. Right? Build your battery backup systems. Occasionally, go run the stuff off of it. See what it's like. Become experienced with it. And like in Steve Harris's videos, if you haven't bought the videos for the battery backups, you may really want to consider doing that. They're great. I'll put a link uh, to those in today's show notes as well. But one of the coolest things I saw that he did is on all the chargers and everything, he takes that blue painter's tape and puts it next to every control and then writes in plain English what, he, what every control means so that if he's away, he can talk to his wife on the phone and explain it and, and not go, it's the rabbit, honey. I don't see a rabbit. It's the ra it's the, it, there's buttons. You see the buttons? Yeah, there's a button with a rabbit. I don't, see, it's, you know, if it's written there, it's easy to understand. And I think that that's something that I'm going to put more into my preps. Because when it's dark out, when it's cold out, when you got a flashlight in between your teeth, these are the times when this routine stuff takes a little bit more extra effort. But anyway, I just want to share that with y'all, and, and now I'm ready to go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which is DIY prepping and the mindset of the criminal element from someone who's seen it up close and personal, uh, Mr. David Nash. And with that, hey, David, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, how you doing? Appreciate you having me on. Hey, we're going to have you on to kind of talk about DIY prepping. We've done that a few times before. It's always been cool because it seems like as soon as someone goes down that path, they start to get creative. <laughs> yes, um, but could you tell people just a little bit about yourself, kind of your background, what you're doing now, and, and what kind of led you to this approach? Well, you know, I grew up on a state park. My dad was a park ranger, so that whole wilderness survival, Indian lore, bushcraft stuff is, is kind of what started it. My mom couldn't keep bullion cubes in the, in the closet because I'd always steal them to make you know, survival kits, but got out, joined the Marines, uh, kind of quit doing that for a while because you can't really prep in a barracks very well. Uh, got out, went to the prison and, uh, uh, started reading books about preparations and, and doing, you know, welding and, and all sorts of just a whole bunch of different topics. But I never really, I kind of got out of the habit of doing things. Um, I was just reading about them and thinking that that, that that was, was the equivalent. So, but, 2002, 2003, I started uh, taking some courses. I became a fireman instructor, uh, fireman instructor for uh, for my agency, for my department, and uh, kind of got a big. That started my website as a firearm school, and then you know, as I as I matured in that, I realized that uh, firearms are cool, but they're just one piece of the self reliance puzzle, and started to want to show 
some of the things that I thought I knew because I read books about them. So I started doing stuff, you know, and, and realized quickly that I didn't, wasn't as smart as I thought I was and started uh, actually trying to do all the stuff that I've read about. And that's kind of progressed and, and grew as I've gained some, some confidence and some uh, confidence in, you know, how to do these things. And, and uh, it's just been kind of a trip learning all the new, new skills. And was there any particular thing that kind of drove you back to the prepper thing? I mean, you're telling a story that sounds a lot like me. You grew up with it. You walked away from it. You came back to it. Was there any kind of a, a seminal moment where you thought, man, I really need to get, you know, I know it was like a long walk back if it was anything like mine, but there's just a point where you said, you know what, it's not just because I used to do it, but something out there kind of triggered it in you, made you feel a little bit exposed and realized how far you'd fallen away from it? Well, you know, my story is a little different in that I left corrections um, to go into emergency management. I, I worked for a, a state government agency, kind of like FEMA, and, uh, you know, involved in planning what the response would be to a disaster. And I got to work several, you know, like in Katrina and, and, and other disasters like that, the May 2010 floods, and just saw how you know, people suffer and how the government's got pretty good plans in place to, to help, but it takes a while to get that going. And if, and if you're able to, to prepare and fend for yourself, then you lessen, you know, you lessen the, the governmental response so they can give the resources to other people and, and it makes yourself a lot more comfortable and a lot less dependent. And so that kind of spurred me to get back into, uh, to prepping full time. But, you know, I'm not one of those I'm worried about. A set disaster like I'm not, you know, I wasn't a Y2K guy and I'm not a Mayan guy, you know, because, you know, my canned food, my stored food, it doesn't care why I eat it. it, it you know what I'm saying? I'm kind of for all hazards, anything. And it's worked out for me, you know, when the tree falls on the side of the house, you know, that I find that my preps work for everything, so. Yeah, I've I've always said that. I, I just had a recent interview where I said, you know, and they, these guys were really focused on EMP. You know, what's the probability and, and trying to basically get me to get on board with the whole thing that's going to happen sometime very soon. And my response was, look, guys, it, it doesn't matter why the lights are out. It matters that the lights are out. It doesn't matter why security has failed. It matters that security has failed. It doesn't matter why you're hungry. It matters that you're hungry. It doesn't matter why you're cold. It matters that you're cold. And I, I think that's kind of what you're saying there. Uh, absolutely. You just said it a little better. So I'm probably going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to do so, man. So um, you're here to talk to us again about DIY prepping. What, what's your kind of your angle on that? Why do you think that's a, a, a cool thing or a, an important thing to discuss? Well, you know, I grew up on, on MacGyver, and, and, you know, I didn't like his politics, but uh, uh, I like the idea that, that, you know, if you've got the knowledge you know, and you've got the skill, then you can go ahead and think outside the box. I used to teach criminal justice at one of the local uh, colleges. I used to tell my students, you can't think outside the box till you understand the box. But, you know, as, as preppers, a lot of guys get kind of tied up in gear, and, and, and you need gear. You need stuff. I'm not saying you don't, but, you know, we're in Tornado Alley, and, and Tornado comes by and takes your house off its foundations. You might not have your, you know, year's worth of storage. You know, you might not have all your freeze-dried stuff. And, and skills, knowledge, things that you that you know how to do, it doesn't matter what the disaster is. If you're breathing, you can still do that. That can't be taken away from you. So I don't really want to be dependent on 
things to make me independent of, you know, the grid or, or, you know, societal whatever. So I want to learn how to do things for myself so that I can always do that. And I find that, you know, learning one project gives me more confidence and, and more ability. It's kind of like a snowball. Learning that first skill is hard, but it, it builds and makes it much easier to learn new things. Well, it is kind of twofold, isn't it? Because at the end of the project, you don't just have whatever you built that now stands in to do something for you. You've also improved a skill set, maybe learned a new skill set. And, and that is something that, like you say, no matter what happens to a house, as long as you ain't dead, you still have your skills. Absolutely. So of all the projects you've been doing, kind of what's your favorite project you, you've done? Well, you know, it's it's kind of an ongoing project, and, and I kind of take it slow because it's one of those things, if you screw up, it's kind of catastrophic. But I've been messing with steam a little bit. Uh, what was that? With steam. I, I saw okay. like, I was a, uh, converting a weed eater engine into a, a you know, an old weed eater into a steam engine. So I did that, and uh, so I've been working on to make a boiler, trying to, convert the steam engine into useful. I'm trying to learn how to, to wire my own generator so I can, you know, because regular generators you buy at the Walmart, whatever, you know, they, they only last a couple hundred hours, you know, and then, and then they're kaput, they're gone. So um, I figure if I could have one that's run on steam that I built from scratch, you know, wind the coils and everything, if, if it breaks, all I got to do is go get another scrap weed eater. And, and build up another one, and I can have power even when there's no fuel at all. Because in a disaster like that, where you can't have gas, you can always get twigs, and you know there's always wood debris you can burn to make steam. So, well, and if you built it and something breaks with it that's repairable, well, you would know how to fix it because you know exactly how it works. Absolutely. So, but it's it's slow going because you know I, I don't want to blow up a steam boiler and melt my. And that is a risk. You do have to be careful with that. Are there any other things that you've done maybe a little less likely to uh, to scald you and burn you? I'm really enjoying. I got into beekeeping, and I'm really enjoying messing messing with the bees. You know, I've I've started to try to figure out ways to make my own uh, equipment so I don't have to order it because you know most of the stuff you mail order there you you can't go to Walmart and get beekeeping equipment. So I've been kind of experimenting with that. So that's pretty fun. Have you worked on anything maybe for honey extraction? Yeah, you know, I've uh, I've got a couple plants trying to find me a, a nice uh, 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 washing machine so I can make a tub extractor. But mostly we just we just kind of smash and drain the stuff because one of the reasons we got into honey is so we could have wax. And uh, if I, if I do the the regular spinning extraction, you don't get as much wax because you're reusing them. So uh, sure. I saw on your blog you like mead too, so you're you're immediately in the club, so to speak, if you're a mead maker, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. You know the the survival punk said he enjoyed uh, coming over there and and having a cold beer with you that not too long ago. So yeah, we tried to to make a little bit of adult beverage here and there. <laughs> well, mead is the premium adult beverage. Uh, you got any like projects in the works that are coming up that you're excited about? Um. You know, we're we're trying to learn how to do vinegar. I figure if I've got all this alcohol, you know, I wanna I wanna be able to make with it, and that that allows me 
make my own stuff to do, my own pickling and canning and, you know, ferment. And I'm trying to learn how to ferment some, some hot sauce with some peppers I grew this year. So we're, we're doing a lot more, um, I guess, homesteading here recently than technologically based things. So that's kind of exciting. That is cool. So you're doing some homesteading stuff. So what are you sitting on some acreage or are you sitting in the suburbs? What, what, what do you, what do you got for resources there? So that makes, that's what makes it interesting because I live in a, uh, in a subdivision and uh, only have, you know, a little less than an acre of a lot. And we've got bees and rabbits and chickens and I've got a couple fruit trees and some, uh, um, raised bed gardens and grapevines. So really, I've, my goal is not have to mow the yard anymore. <laughs> so we're we're trying to grow as much stuff as we can in our small little lots. So, you know, that's kind of fun. Um, what would you say maybe some of the biggest challenges that you've had with actually getting projects done as far as maybe some skills you've had to work on or just certain things maybe not working out for you or, or just being the biggest challenge? Well, I, I've got three, and, and I guess the biggest is – I never really learned a lot of these skills growing up. I, I always want to be by myself out in the woods or, you know, when dad wanted to show me how to, you know, use the, the skill saw or, or you know, or, or build something. I really didn't want to do it on his terms. I'm going to do it on mine. So I didn't learn that. And then, you know, I've got time management. We've all got limited resources. So it's kind of hard for me to, uh, to make time to do some of this. And then, you know, the wife is, she's on board with me prepping, you know, she understands and, and we've had some small disasters here that, you know, she's, she's seen that, uh, what I'm doing is, is for her benefit, for the family's benefit. But, you know, sometimes when I go to the, to the lows and come back with a whole bunch of copper pipe and, you know, conduit and I'm trying to build a, you know, a chicken coop or something, she, she, <laughs> she doesn't really see the completed thing. She just sees the, the bunch of stuff all over the house. You, you know? get the eye roll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, making, you're, you're making a mess, <laughs> you know. So I get I get that you're making a mess quite a bit. But, you know, I mean, if, if I'm trying to make a, you know, I was running the steam engine using a, a pressure cooker on the stove one time, and so I, I guess I kind of deserve the eye roll there. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting idea, though. Hmm. That gets the gears going. Are there any, like, Maybe simple get you know to get your feet wet projects that you'd recommend for people like as a first step that something pretty easy that you're gonna have a pretty high uh, propensity to have some success with. Well, you know, I'd kind of look at trying to solve problems that I have and, and say light. You know, you want to have some sort of lighting, and we store a bunch of oils. Oils go rancid, so. Uh, one of the things I do in some of the uh, seminars that I'll teach is, is we'll make an olive oil lamp using, uh, you know, a mason jar and a, a piece of cotton string, some old olive oil, and a, and a paper clip where you basically just, you know, bend the paper clip to put the, the cotton down in the oil. And you have a pretty bright light using using something that, um, you know, if your olive oil goes, goes rancid, you're really never going to eat it. Really not a whole lot of other uses for it, so you get some, some, you know, very inexpensive lighting. So it's a good way to get your feet wet and, and, and teach, start teaching yourself to look at the materials and try to come up with a new solution, use things not in their normal manner. So what's great about that one is it'll work with any kind of oil or grease. I mean, you can do it with bacon grease. It's going to smell, but it can be done. I've done it with deer tallow, and you've done it with olive oil, and it, it it's like a translatable thing. It's not, okay, well, here's how to make an olive oil lamp. It's here how to make an oil lamp. This is one kind of oil you can use in it. 
Now that starts to open the box for people as to, you know, like you said, outside of the box, you got to understand the inside and get the, get the lid off it. And then you can start to kind of think, well, how do I piece all this stuff together? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people are using Crisco and, and they say a tub of Crisco burns for like 48 hours doing that. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You learn one skill, it translates to, to several other things if you're just paying attention and you just keep your mind open to the possibilities. Well, I'm all for using the Crisco for a candle and the bacon fat for cooking. I think you're better off that way. <laughs> right. I, I absolutely think you're right there. So you've got a book coming up. It's going to be called 52 Projects for Self-Reliance. What's that all about? Um, well, you know, when I started doing this, I kind of just started doing what I thought was interesting, right? You know, and, and having to, to make my own tools because I couldn't really afford to buy them. But I kind of went willy-nilly. And so the stuff on the website is just kind of, there's a lot of stuff there, but you kind of have to sort through it. And, and I was trying to figure out if I did it over again, you know, what projects would I do first? And so basically, you know, if you go online, you start looking at books. There's a lot of books for preppers, but they're either really basic and they all say the same thing. This is how you store food, you know, whatever. This is how you build a bug out bag. And then there's some advanced stuff out there. But there's not really something that, that everybody in the, in the niche, I guess, can learn something from. So what this book does is it sets out 52 projects. The idea is for you to take a, take a day during your weekend, a couple hours a week or something, and you, and you do the projects. And if you start at the beginning and work your way through, it starts at very basic projects. How to build a, uh, you know, a bug out bag. How to build a, a document binder. You know, a lot of guys in Katrina, we'd see come to the shelters. They'd leave their house and they wouldn't have their social security card. They wouldn't have their, you know, they wouldn't have their driver's license. They just had to leave. So how to build a document binder that you could just grab in a fire. You know, those simple things. And then it, and then it, it like for instance, we have several cheese making videos and you, you, or projects. You start out making a, a very simple cheese. You make a cheese press, you make cheddar cheese, and then in the end you're taking dehydrated milk and making cheese, which, you know, everybody's got, you know, cases of, of you know, powdered milk, or a lot of preppers have a lot of powdered milk, but haven't found anybody yet who likes drinking it. No, not me. Not at all, man. Um, there's some kind of milk substitute that uh, Honey Honeyville Grains makes, and it's drinkable, and it's even not good, and it ain't milk. Powdered milk we have lots of. We cook with it. Yeah. I ain't doing anything with it as far as drinking it unless maybe it's going in some coffee as a creamer. But I never thought about making cheese with it, and I guess there's no reason you can't do that. No, we, we try to show how, and that's, that's the idea. Each tool that you make builds into, you know, better stuff. So, so each project you efforts to do the next project so I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. i think it's it's a real good uh, resource out there I, I like the idea of doing a cheese press and, and and stepping up to things like cheddar cheese and all because when my wife found out about making cheese she was really excited until she found out simple cheese was like mozzarella and stuff like that she's like it has no flavor it hasn't been aged it's too soft and she rattled off about 15 reasons why mozzarella sucks unless it's on a pizza and I told her, so well, if you want to make hard cheese, honey, you've got to, you got to press it. And, uh, she wasn't too hip on that at first, but I think that maybe, maybe that, I don't know if you know about our site. We're doing a site called 13skills.com. 
And that's about improving individual skills in 2013. We're calling 13 and 13 challenge. So cheese making is now on her list of skills to acquire in 2013. And maybe we'll pick up your book when it comes out and maybe that can help us construct a press. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with that. I keep, you know, uh, looking at it. My problem is I look at the third, you know, I look at all the different, because you've got like 70 or so skills there. And, and my problem is I want to learn them all. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and we, you know, we've actually had some struggles with the site where people are like, well, I want to add this skill. And we're like, well, that can go under here. And they're like, well, well why does that? And it's like we're trying to keep the number. And we're merging some stuff together. And we're trying to let people, you can be as flexible as you want under a primary skill set. So if you want to do solar oven cooking, put it in cooking and go nuts, you know. Um But, uh, I mean, yeah, and that is kind of an issue. People want to learn a lot. But I think there's, like, so, like, whether it's set 13 goals in 2013 or have a, a kind of a blueprint for 52 projects, one a week, that having that kind of a, a schedule, however you want to keep it for yourself, helps you progress through this stuff. Because uh, I don't know about you, but if I don't have some sort of, you know, plan or, or guidepost, there's no telling what I'm going to end up doing. You know, and it may not be the best use of resources for the time, you know? Yeah, if I don't have a plan, it's going to become real easy to take about a two-mile walk with the dog up the mountain, sit up there and drink a beer and watch the sunrise and come home and watch football. I mean, it's it's easy to, to, to turn into something like that. Uh, but, you know, at, at some point you've got to kind of knuckle down and say, well, this Saturday or this weekend or this week, this is what I'm going to do. And I think with DIYers, it's more important because if you're a DIYer, you have this natural impulse to tinker with stuff. Just let's be honest, to mess with crap. That's what we do. And, and anything we see, you know, I had a professional fishing guide buddy. He'd show me a, a, a rig, and it, I'd come up with 72 different versions of that rig before I just acknowledged, yes, you already had it right. That's why you're a pro and I'm not. So we have that propensity. So if we don't get in some guidance, We just we'll be messing with shoelaces and sticks, and next thing you know, we're making a spear. But it's not really going to hold a frog on because we didn't plan it that way, and that's what we need. To, I mean, I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. But that is that your experience? And if you don't knuckle down on a something, you're just off in left field, and you're having fun, but maybe you're not really getting what you want done done. That, yeah, that's that's exactly what my uh, uh, experience is, and that's why I say on the website, you know, I'm not an expert at anything but research. So I say I'm, I'm not telling you I've got the best way or the only way. I'm just telling you how I did it, and I always tell people if you've done this or you looking at it and you've got a better way, please tell me because you know that doesn't just help everybody; it helps me, so I'm not wasting my time. So I'm always open for people to. Uh, to give me some guidance because I personally I need it. Yeah, I feel the same way except for like the 12-year-old pimple-faced video game players on YouTube that want to tell you you're a dumbass. Other than that, I'll take all the input I can get, you know. Um And there is some of that out there. But then there's sometimes where I've gotten into, into some things and, and tried to do something and eventually went Yeah, this isn't really my strength. This isn't my skill. This isn't going to work for me. And that's why I think it's important that we develop some level of community because if we ever have to really rely on this, even if you can do everything, you're not going to have time to do everything. Absolutely. My my grandpa pointed that out to me. You know, he said, yeah, about my projects, he said, boy, you're, you're planning on living forever, ain't you? You know? I mean, nobody can do everything, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff to learn. 
you know, and a lot of people have forgotten it. I hate that our traditional skills are kind of, you know, they're they're evaporating. Nobody's nobody's learning them. So, um, you know, that's kind of what what the website is for, and I guess that's kind of what your thirteen skills site's for. Absolutely, absolutely. Are there are there any of the things that you do that you really like? Maybe even maybe spend more time with than you should, just because it's something you enjoy so much that you can. It, it goes from a DIY thing to an obsessive hobby. Um. Probably the metalworking stuff, and I don't put as much on on the website as I do because I'm very bad at it. But I really want to be good at it. You know, a lot of a lot of I'm a big fan of like uh, you know Mad Mike Williamson and how they all they make knives and things. And I really want to do that, but I haven't really got anything that that's that's worth showing anybody yet. So I spend a whole lot of time wasting metal. <laughs> I understand that, and I remember when I had I had shop classes in school, and I had wood and metal shop, and the metal shop teacher always used to make fun of the wood shop teacher because he said metal was a true skill, and wood shop allowed you to make tons of mistakes. He's like, "There's no such thing as metal dough. There's no such thing as metal filler. If you if you screw up a piece of metal, it's screwed up. You can't patch it." You know, and, and and he kind of mocked the wood shop guy and said, you know, you drill a hole where you don't want it, you throw a little bit of wood dough in there and stain over it, and it's good to go. If board's too short, you can put a shim in. Um, but it takes a lot more of uh, an accuracy to be a metalsmith than a woodsmith. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I seen a post the other day where a guy made an AK-47 out of a shovel. I saw that. That was one of the most badass things I've ever seen in my life. Okay, I, so I've been researching do-it-yourself uh, uh, AK uh, receiver break. You know, and I, I've got a, I found a link where a guy did it out of stuff you got at the at the you know Home Depot. So if I make an AK here pretty before long, my wife's going to whoop me. But I think I'm going <laughs> to. Well, and you know, there's the old you know AK or AR, which is the better platform. And when they say that the AK is a simple, easy-to-make, easy-to-maintain platform, the fact that a guy can make one out of a shovel and some sheet steel, that says a lot for the AK platform. I'm telling you, a bunch of, you know, peasants make it in the garage with, with you know, hand tools. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that there's a lot to be learned from people that end up in those scenarios because somehow those folks always have ammo, and they're not ordering it from cheaper than dirt. They, they're manufacturing ammo as well as, as, as firearms. And uh, I hate to say it, if things go bad enough the wrong way at the right time in this place, we may need those skills. I, I pray to God we don't, and I hope it just ends up being fun stuff that we can do. But someday that kind of stuff might be necessary. You know, absolutely. I think any reasonable person is, is like you. They They don't want that to happen. But I don't see how people can look at the world today and not see that it's possible. You know, we just had a guy named Rory Miller who is a self-defense guy share some common background with you with Prison Guard. I know it's not really on the subject, but could you maybe just talk about how working inside a corrections institution changes your view a little bit about possibly the necessity of using skills like this, being able to defend ourselves additionally? You know, absolutely. I just did a guest post on uh, propography about you know, prepper skills I learned in prison, and, and it's kind of like that. You know, when I went into the prison, I've, I've always been kind of fiscally conservative, but I was a little more socially liberal, you know, when I started working for the prison, and, and you know, those poor guys are, are 
you know, victims of society, whatever. But but as I worked in the prison, the more that I worked there and the more that I saw that, that you know, there were people out there that were just truly bad. didn't matter what you did for them. They're, they still look at everyone else as, as, you know, shopping malls, basically. You know, what can I get from this person? You know, and, and just seeing that the level of violence that people, you know, are willing to do to each other, you know, just for... You know, you you have some candy bars and I want them, you, you know, it just it's really opened my eyes because, you know, I really I teach firearm stuff, you know, but I really don't, you know, I, I really hope I never have to, to actually use them. I hope my students never actually have to use them. But but after working at the prison and just seeing, you know, the things that people can do to each other, I just I want to make sure that the, the most uh, good people have the equivalent tools and the equivalent skills. You know, because if somebody's got to uh, to get hurt in a fight, I'd rather it be the guy that instigated it, you know, the bad guy, than the good people. Yeah, I think a lot of people have a hard time getting their heads around the way some people really are and what they're willing to do. We just had a, a segment I did on the, uh, the guy from AutoZone that was fired for saving the life of his manager. Tell me, I read that. And one of our one of our audience said, "Hey, I'd prefer if he was holding me up, that guy not go get his gun and come because all he wants is some money. And he's going to leave." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's not how it always works out." Um, when I was a very young boy, I remember my grandfather had, got shot, fortunately with a 25, and fortunately by someone that didn't know what they were doing. Uh, but a guy held him up, said, "Give me the money." He gave the guy the money, and the guy immediately pointed the gun at his head. And he knew he was going to pull the trigger, so he, like, ducked down and threw his arm up. The bullet hit him in the back of the tricep and traveled up the arm, ended up somewhere under, you know, somewhere in in the fatty part of the back of the arm. And they actually left the bullet in him. So he kicks the guy. You know, he's an older guy, you know, but he kicks the guy, fighting for his life, runs out uh, this office that he was in. As he's going around the corner, he slips on some oil. The guy runs up with the gun, points it at his head, and, of course, you know, a cheap twenty-five auto, it jams. But the guy tried like four times to kill him before enough people came out that he ran away. Yeah. Now, I just think a lot of people have a hard time accepting the fact that if the guy just says he wants money, you give him the money, he may not just go away. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm the same way. You know, if I thought giving a guy the money would make him go away, I'd give him the money. I'm not, I don't want to hurt anybody over stuff. But if, you know, if, I, if I get that feeling that it's a fight for my life, I'm, I'm not going to give up, you know. But, you know, we had a guy, I used to work Max, I spent most of my time working Max for security. We had a guy who, uh, he planned, that's all he wanted to do is hurt, hurt guards. You know, that's all he wanted to do, was never getting out of prison. And you could look at his yearly uh, ID photo and just see how over the years he got progressively crazy. But this guy would, you know, he'd set his, he'd set his house on fire, he'd set his cell on fire, lay down, act like he was passed out. So the people who come in to try to save him, put the fire out, he'd try to kill him. Or he'd cut himself. Act like he was passed out, blood coming under the door. You know, they come in to to save his life, and he tries to kill him. You know, I mean, not everybody thinks like you and I do. You know, yeah, I do know, and that's why I figure if you'll put a gun in my face and tell me you'll kill me if I don't give you money, you've already violated the part where I believe you. Yes, and if if I have the opportunity, you're done yes. uh, because I'm not risking my life on you keeping your word when you've already shown me that you'll put a gun in my face. And I think that I fear for a lot of people, even in our community, 
that should know better, that can't seem to get their head around the fact that people, and I'm not saying everybody that's a bad guy is that bad of a guy. Thank God they're not, because the society we would have would be unbelievable. But at the point that you're making first contact with somebody, and that contact involves them threatening you in, in some way seriously, you have to assume the worst if you want the best chance of surviving the confrontation. Absolutely. You know, the, it's a progression. People don't start their career in crime with armed robbery. You know, they start with shoplifting candy at the grocery store. You know, if the guy's got a gun, puts it on his side, says, I'm going to go out and rob somebody today, he's probably already mugged somebody with a stick. You know, he's probably hurt people already. He's already made the decision that if it's you or him, he's going to kill you. You know, so you have to take them seriously. If, if, if they're you know, robbing you or assaulting you with a deadly weapon, you you have to believe that they're that they're willing to kill you. There's no other way around it. Well, and I know of another example. You know, my, my, my I just thought about my grandpa being shot when I was a kid. Um, was, he was working for my father. My father had a tire uh, shop in kind of a bad part of town. Across the street was a convenience store. And about a year after this happened, a guy walked in there, uh, held a gun on the the, the female clerk. She cleaned out the cash register, gave him all the money. He leaned across the counter, pressed the gun to the bone underneath her right eye, and shot her in the face and killed her where she stood. Um, the only upside of that is there was also a male clerk that was in the, uh, the back of the, the behind the counter that this guy didn't see. He produced a shotgun from underneath one of the, the hiding spots of some kind and ended up shooting this guy in the head and killing him. So at least he ended up dead. Um, but that's another example of compliance not working. Absolutely. You know, statistics bear out that, that when, when dealt with violence, you know, women have a lot better chance of surviving rapes if they, if they do fight back. You know, that's not politically correct, but, you know. Uh, well, it's true, and here's the thing. The person that says, just comply and I won't kill you, when he says it, might mean it. Yeah. Then he goes and he rapes this woman, and then he starts thinking, She'll tell. She knows what I look like. She knows who I am. And a person that maybe isn't the, the guy we're talking about becomes that guy. And the problem that people don't get an understanding of is the person attacking you only has to be that guy for one second for it to be too late for you. You know, and that's a very hard thing for people to understand. But I, I, I think I need to probably bring more corrections people on to talk about this kind of thing in the future because I think it's important that we do get this through our heads. Well, that's that's why I wrote that first book on uh, on handguns because if teaching carry permits, a lot of guys will come in. You know, they want they want to take the class and have a have a permit. They they bring their wife in there. You know, if I'm gonna have a gun, my you know wife's gonna know how to shoot it, kind of thing. And and the women are kind of, you know, and it's not a gender thing, but it, it's a inexperienced thing, and they may be a little bit um, leery about guns. They don't really know much about them. And you hear all this, you know, I would, I don't think I could shoot somebody, or I'd try to shoot them in the leg, or I'd try yes. to shoot them in the arm, you know. So I've I've had to write a lot of articles about the proper mindset, and I, and I always say it's really easy to teach somebody how to shoot a gun. But what's difficult, what, what a lot of people don't get is how hard it is to teach somebody when to shoot a gun or the mental aspects that go into it. You know, there's a lot of morality when it comes in, in, into, you know, lethal force. There's a lot of 
psychological and, and, and sociological issues that come up. And a lot of people just don't understand that as, as we see, as you were talking about with the, you know, with the, with the school shooting stuff, you know? Yep. Yeah. And I'll tell you on the women thing, um, I met a girl in uh, Arlington at the Self-Reliance Expo last year. Pretty little gal, nicest person you ever meet. And when she she was talking about concealed carry, how she has her permit and all, and how she's taking several classes. But I mean, just the nicest little gal you could possibly meet. Really kind of sweet is the only word. Well, I was talking to her about how I've had a hard time getting through to women sometimes on this subject. And how I just talked to a woman that said, my husband carries and I'm always with him. So he's he's got he's got it covered he's got my back and this sweet little girl looked like she was about to kill 15 people with her bare hands the anger that came across her face and she said you go find that lady and you ask her while her husband's got her back who's got his absolutely and i was like wow i this i like this girl man <laughs> and and that's i mean that's what i think a lot of wives need to realize that just cuz your husband's prepared doesn't you know none of us have eyes on the back of our head and, you know, everybody has what we call, I don't want to take this too technical, but a sector of fire, and it ain't 360 degrees. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's just so many issues as it relates to that. You know, and, and you know, we talk about prepping, and, and we have all the, the stuff and in a grid-down situation. You know, if you try to do it all by yourself, you know, who's sleeping? Who's watching out when you're sleeping? It, you have to have a team. You know, and your and your spouse is is the number one because you can't trust anybody like you trust your spouse. You know, I so, sure don't. There's it, not a person on the planet I trust more than my wife. You know, and I guess if there was, I wouldn't be married. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely, know, absolutely. So you know, you you've got to. But the thing is, a lot of guys that we we tend to get all egotistical about our gun and put all our ego into this piece of iron and wood and stuff. When when our when our ego really ought to be around our skills. And, and when we when we approach our spouses about the guns, you know, we, we, we're not talking to them in a way that they can grasp what we're saying, you know. We're, we, you know, just because you paint the gun peak doesn't make, make it an appropriate gun for a woman, you know. I think, I think another thing that we tend to do is we lose sight of one of the most important skills we can have in dealing with violence, which is, if possible, de-escalation. Because we have this big bravado thing where I'm going to stand up and I don't care what happens to me and all. And when, once you're married or once you have kids especially, and when you're in a scenario like that and they're around, or even when they're not around, like because if you're not going to go home, who's going to take care of them? But when they're there, that bravado has to go in your back pocket, man, because you're risking their safety and their lives as much as your own. And I think a lot of, especially young men, have a problem with this because we're taught to grow up and be tough and all. And sometimes being tough involves being smart and knowing when not to fight. Absolutely. And I guess a perfect example of that recently was in the uh, Clackamas, Oregon mall shooting, you know, on the 11th. You know, the, the we hear about the guy with the AK that, or the AR that shot the two people in the mall, but there was an armed citizen there, you know, a 20-year-old man. He's, he's walking with his uh, girlfriend and, and her four-month-old old child. He hears the shoot. You know, they had a you know, kind of a understanding, he told her, you know, take the kid and go, and, and she leaves. You know, my wife yep. would, would uh, you know, she would ask why. Or she'd be like, you know, don't go over there, you know, something. But but he said, go on. She So she did her job. She took the child and left. He came up, took cover, pulled his gun out, aimed at the guy, and then that whole reasonableness kicked in. The situational awareness, he saw that 
he didn't have a shot because there were a lot of innocent people behind the guy. Yeah. He didn't shoot, but then the shooter saw him and ended up killing himself with the next, with the next round, you know? So, you know, we don't, we don't really talk about those guys that showed good judgment and good restraint and did as they were trained. And in this case, still changed the outcome. Absolutely. The very fact that he was going to be confronted with somebody on at least close to equal footing took that guy and made him do what he was probably going to do anyway, but do it before he killed more people. Well, you know, statistics bear it out. Spree killers, mass shooters, you know, people who do that, they don't stop until they're stopped. You know, they because they're 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 trying to to become infamous. They've already decided to to kill themselves. They just want to make sure that they get on the news. Yeah, and they don't have the courage to just do it either. I think that's a lot of times what they're going to do. They're going to say, it's almost subconscious, but I want to do this. I'm too much of a coward to do it. But if I do this, I'll have no choice. Absolutely. I, I, you know, it's like hanging yourself with a thousand-foot rope. you got a long draw before you hit the bottom. But in the end, you're going to end up in the same position. And I think that these guys know that at least subconsciously when they go in. And I think a lot of times when they're not stopped and they just stop on their own and kill themselves, whatever it was that they needed to do, they feel like they've done it. And that's why we've got to have systems in place to take these people out. Because you don't know when he's going to reach that point. Well, you know, look at Edison. Edison, or I'm sorry, look at Einstein. Einstein said, you know, it's it's stupidity to try to solve a problem. It's impossible to solve a problem with the same level of thinking that caused it. You know, guns aren't the solution. They're not the, they're, they're, that's not the symptom. The symptom is you've got crazy people, but we, until we deal with that, you know, taking the guns away from the people who can stop them, that's, that just ensures that you have a higher, you know, a higher amount of death and and innocent loss, you know? Well, and there's been, there were close to a hundred people killed and several hundred injured. In school attacks in China in 2011 and 2012, and the assailants used knives, clubs, whatever they could get their hands on, because they do have such strict gun control over there that the criminal element really can't get a hold of a gun, but it didn't save anybody's life, and one person with a gun might have saved a lot of person, uh, people's lives. Well, look how many people were murdered before they ever invented guns. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Guns, guns are just a tool. They're an effective tool for what they're used for, but they're a tool. You know, you can't win the hammer if the if the construction worker screws. Oh, that was one of the tools. That was one of the. I, I was I was trying to think. It was clubs, knives, and hammers. That was one of the things that that was, has been used in these Chinese school massacres. Is a freaking hammer. You know, a guy going nuts with a hammer on little kids. Um, he might as well have a gun. Because little kids can't fight back. I mean, you try that in a shopping mall, you're going to get your you know, head legitimately beaten in for it. But there's always a way to do harm if you want to. You know, you know, 9-11 was with box cutters. And the way we dealt with that is, is we put sky marshals. You know, we put guys in the planes with guns. Nobody knows how many we got. Nobody knows where they're at. Nobody knows you sit next to one and not know it. Because yep. we haven't had any more hijacking attempts. Yeah, and the other thing that changed was the mindset of the passenger, and I think that's part of what we have to change, the mindset of the people in these these situations. Before 9-11, if somebody stood up and said, I'm hijacking the plane, everybody said, okay, 
We're just going to comply. It's the, the best course of action. They want to go somewhere. They want to negotiate something, what have you. After 9-11, that Richard Reed guy yeah, got to set up a bomb in his shoe, and they, the passengers immediately beat the hell out of him. Yep. There was a doctor on there that sedated him. They tied him up. The, the entire mindset of the passenger has changed. I think today, if somebody's on a plane and somebody says, up and says they're hijacking a plane and that plane doesn't happen to have a marshal on it, that plane ain't going nowhere. I, I really believe that the people, even if some people get hurt, they're going to just say, you know what, you're not flying us into a building. So we're we're going to settle this now. And I think that that mindset needs to permeate more of society. Well, I mean, if it's good enough for, for business class passengers going from New York to L.A., then then why ain't it good enough for our six-year-old kids? You know, why can't we why can't we protect our kids better? You know, take all the emotional about gun control. Let's do what's effective. You know, I, yeah, that's why I think they need to add. And, you know, you were telling me you were just listening to my, my, my stuff on this, but we need to add evacuation as part of the plan. Not the only plan. I think I was misunderstood, but yeah. it needs to be part of the plan. If there's I mean, if somebody's shooting at people in an area I'm in, even if I'm armed, the first thing I'm doing is moving, getting the hell out of the line of fire. Then I'll assess the situation and see if I can help. But I'm not going to stand there and look around. That's how you get dead. And the what if stuff drives me crazy. But what if this and what if that? And I don't mean to put this harsh on me, but I've said this before, and it does make a point. One of my my wood shop teachers one told me this because I was giving he was a hunter, and I was talking about you know thirty oh six being better than three oh eight. And I'm what if what if what if? And he finally pulls me according to Spirko. Let me ask you a question. What if your aunt had balls? <laughs> and I said what? He goes she'd be your uncle. Right, and his whole point was get off the what ifs and start working on what what is, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, that's what I, my full time job. I, I write emergency plans, right? We write these emergency plans, and and Eisenhower said plans are worthless. It's the planning process is what's invaluable. You know, when we get people together, we talk about if this happens, what would people do? You know, and then we we write a plan based upon that. But guess what? If the situation on the ground doesn't meet the parameters of the plan. We chunk it, but the relationships and, and knowledge that we've gained by writing the plan, by talking amongst each other, that allows us to succeed, right? It's the same way with prepping and, and you know, it's the same way with self-defense. You know, you, nobody buys a gun, goes to a gun class, tries to learn about guns, and, and does it just strictly in case they're mobbed at the, at the ATM, right? And if I get somebody that costs me anywhere else, I'm not going to do anything. Because yeah. my plan only says for the ATM. This is my ATM gun. Can, yeah. can, you, can you stop trying to rape me so I can go home and get my rape gun? Yeah. You yeah know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> absolutely. We need, we need to have, you know, the people inside the schools, the people inside the malls, the people where we have innocent victims. They, they need to understand the dynamics of violence and then be prepared to deal with the violence. And using whatever tools they have at hand, you know. So that's my take on it. As we're here toward the end, let's see if we can just come back with a, a question I guarantee you didn't expect, but okay. it does bring us back to DIY. You were a prison guard, and you had to deal with the, the, the congressional uh, facilities. And when I watch the shows on that, one of the things that always fascinates me is some of the ingenuity that these guys come up with to manufacture contraband, sometimes dangerous and sometimes just convenience things that, that make up. Is there anything that you can think of from that that, you know, you, you were, even if you didn't like the results, you were kind of impressed by? There, there's several things. You know, when I first, my first week at the prison, right, you know, they found a 12-gauge uh, double-barrel 
shotgun that the inmate made in the metal shop out of pipe and, you know, a, a gate latch and whatever. You know, I've seen, uh, uh, you know, swords made out of lawnmower blades. It's all, all sorts of different imp- tattoo guns, uh, ways to, uh, to distill homemade wine into, into actual hard liquor using spoons and, and bits of, uh, wood and, and, you know, basically a, a power cord to short circuit to create an immersion heater. But one of the neatest things I saw, and, it, and, it, and it's kind of, you know, innocuous, but, you know, inmates have to have headphones. They're not allowed speakers, right? But yeah. only some inmates, are, you know, have the money to buy, you know, because you, you can't get it shipped in. You've got to buy it there, but like tape players or whatever, right? And, and so a lot of inmates that I saw would take uh, styrofoam cups, and then modify their headphones and use the styrofoam cup kind of as a as a amplifier <laughs> and take their headphones and turn into speakers so they could all listen to their music. You know, just the thing that, that I learned about people working in, you know, as I was working with the prison is, you know, disaster may come and people may not have easy access to things, but if inmates can get drugs and guns and weapons and, and, you know, I, I caught an inmate one time with a Nintendo inside the prison. <laughs> I need a Nintendo in the prison. Right? Oh, man. You know, if inmates can do it in maximum security, we can do it out, you know, in a disaster situation. It's just how far are we willing to go? How creative are we going to be? You know? And necessity being the mother of invention. I think the other important thing is that a lot of people look at the, the prison system and these people that are, you know, let, let's just put it flat out. Some of these people are low lives of society and always will be. But because of that, it's easy for them to be written off as crazy or stupid. And these people are not stupid. And the most dangerous criminal is a smart one. And, and it's fun to laugh at stupid criminals. And let's, there's a, I'm sure you've seen some of those, too. Um, But there's a lot of smart criminals, and we need to respect the intelligence level that's there. Because if you don't, it can be really daggone dangerous. Yeah, if you don't understand what you're up against, you know, you have no way to to have countermeasures to it. So you absolutely have to respect the ingenuity and, and, you know, intelligence and viciousness of the inmates. You know, and, and, you know, people in general. I mean, if, if somebody's, the disaster comes and their kids are starving, they have it prepared you know, what are they willing to do to protect their family? I think a lot of people say anything, but I don't know if they're mentally prepared to actually do it. Uh, that's another gut check there. Um, but tell everybody about your website so people can get on by and read your stuff and get your book when it comes out. Yeah, it's, it's pretty easy. It's uh, tngun.com. TN for Tennessee, G-U-N for guns.com. And I've got uh, a lot of free resources, hundreds of, of PDFs, fire manuals, videos, articles covering you know, a lot of firearm stuff, but a lot of just simple, basic, you know, disaster preparedness things, too. So a lot of resources, something for everybody. Well, uh, David, I appreciate you being here with us today. Let me say thank you for the work you're doing there. And also let me say thank you for your service to our country in the military and in law enforcement. Uh, those are two areas where uh, people don't hear it often enough, and I do appreciate your service. And I appreciate you being here with us today. I appreciate you letting come on. All right, folks, and with that, it's been Jack Spierko today along with David Nash helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. 
Revolution is 